Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hi, I'm Beth, and I'll be reading you today's e-edition of the Cape Cod Times, dated Monday, November 13th. We start with the weather and the lottery. This week, not looking so bad. Today, high of 45, but with some increasing cloudiness. Tomorrow, high of 48, partly sunny. A couple of showers might pass by. And Wednesday, at 48 and partly sunny, but then it starts to warm up. Thursday and Friday are looking great with plenty of sun and a high of 57 on Thursday. <clears throat> and 58 on Friday with some thickening clouds. Here are some lottery numbers from the weekend. For Sunday, November 12th, the midday drawing was 9782, and last night's evening drawing was 4741. Mass cash for Sunday, 1341121. And the Powerball number from Saturday night, 112 14, 24, 57, Powerball, 7. Here's your first front page story. In this headline, they're not going to stop. Barstable County commissioners sent a letter Wednesday to a delegation of U.S. lawmakers urging them to oppose more federal funding for a proposed machine gun practice range on Joint Base Cape Cod. The proposed range has the potential to contaminate Cape Cod's sole source aquifer, according to a draft determination by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. The Board of Regional Commissioners' letter was sent to U.S. Representative William Keating and Senator Elizabeth Warren and Senator Ed Markey. Two bids for construction of the machine gun range received by the Mass Army National Guard have come in around $6 million over the $8.9 million estimated cost, according to documents obtained by the Times in October. We anticipate that the Guard will be seeking more funding, said Commissioner Mark Forrest. I think they've demonstrated that they're not going to stop. They basically have disregarded the comments from the EPA, legislators, and the citizenry at large, and they continue to move ahead. Signed by Commissioners Forrest, Sheila Lyons, and Ronald Bergstrom, the letter references the EPA finding that says the machine gun range would produce a four-fold increase in the amount of ammunition and associated contaminants that would be deposited on the ground over the aquifer. It goes on to say the contaminates could reach the groundwater. Our Barstable County Health and Environment Department also undertook a thorough review of the draft EPA report and agrees completely with their analysis and conclusions, the letter said. This facility should not be constructed on the Upper Cape Water Supply Reserve. Joint Base Cape Cod sits on state-owned land, about 30 square miles in total, and includes five military commands, bases, and stations, including the U.S. Army, the Air Force, and the Coast Guard. The National Guard is at Camp Edwards, described by the Guard as the region's largest training area. On June 22nd, the Army National Guard issued a request for proposals for a multi-project purpose machine gun range estimated at $8.9 million. The final bids were due July 17th. 
The machine gun range is needed because the Army National Guard soldiers need to comply with updated U.S. Army qualification standards, including no more paper targets, according to Army National Guard spokesperson Don Veitch. The machine gun range is also needed, Veitch said, because there is no other place in this state that prioritizes Army National Guard training. Joint Base Cape Cod officials were not able to comment Friday, a spokesman said. West Construction Corporation of Halifax made a final bid of $15.4 million, and the R. Zappo Corporation of Stoughton made a final bid of $15.5 million. The county board has discussed the possibility of retaining legal services to assist in halting the authorization of any future funding for the project, Forrest said. The commissioners briefly discussed hiring a firm to assist in preventing any future appropriations and to claw back and terminate any previous authorizations, Forrest said. In other local news, the Truro Board of Registrars completed hearings Thursday on the 66 voter registration challenges filed with the town, wrapping up a contentious four-day process that saw nearly half of the challenged individuals either being taken off the voter rolls by the board or removed prior to the week's proceedings, according to records reviewed by the Times. Raphael Richter, the resident who filed the challenges and once served on the Provincetown Select Board, said the hearings represented a low point for the town, resulting in the delay and disruption of the special town meeting. But, he said, they were ultimately necessary to preserve the integrity of Truro's voter pool. I would describe this as hitting rock bottom, Richter said. We went through a process where our town meeting was delayed because voter registrations had to be investigated, and those investigations were, despite what anybody will say, I think clearly warranted by the results of that process. For the voter challenges, Richter said he cross-referenced names on a list of voters on the official Truro voters' rolls who had registered on or after July 1st using publicly available tax, assessor, and property info. That cross-referencing determined the list of individuals whose voter registration Richter said he challenged. Donna Brewer, an attorney representing several of those named in the complaints, said the process her clients went through was inappropriate, considering the vast majority were deemed properly registered voters. The questions that were raised, the judgments that were made, were not reflective of protecting and getting clear the intent of the voter and their focus of where they view their life to be, Brewer said. And for the people who are my clients, virtually every single one of them was found to have enough social, civic, emotional, and domestic ties to qualify as a true voter. Much of the questioning in the hearing centered around how much time an individual spent in Truro. Although a factor in determining the residency for voting purposes, Brewer said the law states a person can vote in a town they do not live in full time. There is no minimum amount of time somebody needs to spend in a town in order to be a registered voter of that town, said Brewer, a partner at Harrington Heap practicing municipal law. The case law says unless there is compelling evidence to overcome the voter's choice of where their domicile is, their choice of domicile should be respected. A person's domicile, as outlined by the Secretary of State, is the center of one's business, social, civic, and domestic life. 
Residence for voting purposes is not where one thinks their residence is or wants it to be, but rather it is an objective concept demonstrated by evidence of a person's actions. The amount of time spent in a place, former residence, former voter registration, future plans, income taxes, bank accounts, telephone listing, and places of employment. Residents who appeared before the board throughout the week spoke of defending their right to vote and feeling targeted by town officials. Many said the center of their lives are in Truro. One resident who appeared before the board on Thursday, Diane Klein, a retired Massachusetts trial court judge, said during her testimony she spends about 75% of the year in Truro and considers Truro to be her primary home. With all the things I do in Truro, I feel it's terrible to be put in a position to have to stand up for something that I consider so natural, that this is where I live, that that is being challenged, Clyde said, and I don't believe it's been challenged in a correct manner. While the registrars ultimately ruled Klein a properly registered voter in Truro, Richter submitted exhibits demonstrating, among other items, she is listed as an owner of a parcel in Boston where she and another individual who was challenged but did not show, Barry Klegman, signed a declaration of homestead in 2017. Richter also said Klein registered to vote in Truro on September 13th, a day after she cast a vote in Boston. Klein said the vote cast on September 12th was an absentee ballot sent out a long time ago. I know Mr. Richter's making that sound like one day that I did this in one day. It wasn't. It was so long before, Klein said. When I saw the dates, I did say I wasn't even aware of that. The hearings come three months after the Truro Part-Time Resident Taxpayers Association emailed its members in August encouraging them to change their voter registration to Truro so they could vote in the since-rescheduled October 21st special town meeting. None of the recipients of the intercepted email, aside from one, registered to vote in Truro and were not subjects of a registration challenge. The one recipient, Gail Pisapio, who registered, was challenged and appeared before the board on Monday where she was ruled a properly registered voter. Some residents who testified before the registrar said they were members of the Part-Time Resident Taxpayers Association, but most, when asked if they were members, refused to answer. The Part-Time Resident Taxpayers Association did not respond to several requests for comment. On October 21st, town moderator Paul Wazotsky officially opened the meeting and immediately continued it to a later date so town officials had time to investigate alleged illegal voter registrations. When convened, the special town meeting will consider competing proposals for a new Department of Public Works facility at a cost ranging from 15 to $35 million and a housing proposal to build 160 affordable units on a roughly 70-acre plot near Truro Central School known as the Walsh property. At the time of this reporting, the town meeting is scheduled for 5.30 p.m. on November 16th at Truro Central School. Richter said the hearing process was unpleasant but worthwhile. Seasonal residents voting in small seasonal communities can dilute the voices of the voters who lived there full-time or grew up there, he said, but he said the process calls for civil and respectful discourse. There's nothing in it for any of us individually. We're just wanting to save a place that we grew up in that truly needs saving, Richter said, 
referring to people whom he's confided in throughout the registration challenge process. That's where we go from here, finding some common understanding to the maximum, maximum extent possible, but I think mostly creating civility. Here's another front page story with the headline, Talking to Older Relatives About Scams. This summer, Daniel Goldstein's 86-year-old mom got an email that looked as if it was from her bank. She was alarmed because she hadn't spent the money it mentioned, so she called a help number on the email. The person on the other end of the line asked for her bank account information and made her believe she would get her money back. Instead, she lost $600 to a scammer. Last year, consumers of all ages were scammed out of $8.8 billion, and older adults lost the most money compared to other age groups, according to the Federal Trade Commission. While everyone wants to protect their parents and grandparents from scammers, sometimes these conversations can be complicated to navigate. We encourage people to think in multi-generational approaches. Everyone is getting scammed. It's just a different way that scammers go after you, said Genevieve Waterin for the National Council on Aging. Experts shared their recommendations for talking about scams. Knowing which scams are most commonly used to target older people can help. Two of the most common are the grandparent scam and romance scams, said Kathy Stokes, Director of Fraud Prevention at AARP. The grandparent scam is when someone gets a phone call from a person impersonating a grandchild and asking for money to get them out of trouble. The first step to avoid this is to call other family members before taking any action, the FTC recommends. When it comes to romance scams, the FTC reported that people lost $1.3 billion in 2022. Scammers usually contact people through social media and then move the conversation to other messaging apps such as WhatsApp or Google Chat. A lot of older adults are now going into the online dating world. They're making a lot of online conversations, having a lot of dates, but that leads them to scammers who are then convincing them to give them money and send it overseas, Waterman said. What starts as a simple conversation turns into a sudden romantic connection. But then the person asks for money because something happened in their lives and they need help. According to the FTC, common lies by scammers include, I or someone close to me is sick, hurt, or in jail, or I can teach you how to invest. One of the best ways to raise awareness about scams is to talk to each other about them. To keep your older member family members safe, Waterman recommends that families talk about scams more often in their day-to-day -day lives. I love the idea of sitting around the table and talking about scams and making it more common, Waterman said. Goldstein said his mom knows how to use technology fairly well, and they've had many conversations about email scams. However, she had never encountered the type of scam that targeted her over the summer. <clears throat> because she felt a sense of urgency, she didn't contact her son before calling the scammer. Goldstein believes that could have prevented her from losing money. It's a common practice for scammers to make victims feel that they need to act right away, which makes them more vulnerable. If you're having a conversation about scams with your family members, it's important to highlight the rushing aspect of scam practices. When you are navigating complicated conversations, it's better to take an informative approach rather than an authoritative tone. Because your parents or grandparents have a lot of expertise in other life topics, 
If you approach a conversation by imposing your ideas, it might not have the best effect. When Stokes has conversations with her mom about scams, she approaches the conversation by saying that she heard about a new type of scam and asks questions such as, what do you think about this? Instead of using language like, hey mom, there's this scam, don't fall for it. Waterman also recommends that you have conversations as a family, including younger members of your family, and make sure you make it clear that scams target everyone regardless of age. It's about staying vigilant together as a family unit and not to challenge that older adult, but just to explain that scams are becoming more sophisticated. If you're looking for guides to avoid scams for older adults, you can find a variety of them on the National Council on Aging's website. If your family members have already lost money to a scam, Stokes recommends that you approach the conversation with a lot of empathy. We tend to blame the victim, Stokes said. When you're faced with another adult in your life who has experienced a scam loss, understand that it's a crime. Stokes encourages people to think about scammers as organized groups with many resources. Stokes says that people should think of these crimes at the same levels as others and therefore have empathy for the victims. A few days after the scam took place, Goldstein's mom told him about it. She was really unhappy and I'm like, Mom, why didn't you call me, said Goldstein, who felt frustrated by the situation. And this headline from the front page, Turbulent Week for Trump and the GOP. Donald Trump and his Republican challengers stumped South Florida during an up-and-down week for their party, a prelude to what will likely be a volatile campaign year in 2024. Trump and the Republicans began last week with good poll numbers, then suffered big election losses on Tuesday. A day later, Trump skipped another debate with opponents, an angry event in which the candidates described each other as scum and losers. Many Republicans are confident they can topple Joe Biden and take back the Senate in 2024, but they also know internal turmoil could sink their chances. There's so much up in the air, pollster Frank Lunt said after watching the GOP candidates debate in downtown Miami without Trump. Much of the friction is over Trump, who countered the Republican candidates with a rally in Hialeah, Florida. He again denounced anyone who challenges him as a rhino, Republican in name only, and declared the other candidates should simply drop out. During their debate, GOP challengers suggested Trump and his movement are among the reasons Republicans lost in many of the off-year elections this week. The Republican reversals including, included a gubernatorial race in Kentucky and an abortion rights referendum in Ohio. Other candidates said the results revealed the perils of a Trump-led party that lost elections in 2018, 2020, and 2022, and maybe 2024 unless something changes, a point made by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. When Trump first ran for president in 2016, Republicans were going to get tired of winning, DeSantis said during the debate. Well, I'm sick of Republicans losing. Vivek Ramaswamy put it more pungently, we've become a party of losers. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, who has described Trump as a figure of the past, said Republicans need a new way to discuss issues ranging from abortion to the Middle East to the federal debt. I think he was the right president at the right time, Haley said during the debate. I don't think he's the right president now. 
asked during the debate why he would be a better candidate than Trump, Senator Tim Scott, a Republican from South Carolina, said, We need a president and candidate who will actually help our base solidify and attract independent voters into our party. Trump's challengers are also fighting one another, sowing divisions that could further benefit Trump. The most publicized moment of the debate came when Ramaswamy noted that Haley's daughter has used TikTok, a subject of spying allegations against China. Leave my daughter out of your voice, Haley told Ramaswamy. She added, you're just scum. Haley and DeSantis vying to become the main alternative to Trump are also not getting along these days. Rivals have questioned whether Trump can win a general election against Biden, given his legal problems, but that argument took a hit this week amid new polling. An Emerson College poll released Thursday shows Trump leading Biden in five of the six states that will probably determine the winner of the Electoral College. Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Nevada, and Wisconsin. Biden leads in the sixth state, Michigan. Over the weekend, a New York Times and Siena College poll showed Trump leading Biden in Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. Biden leads in Wisconsin. Haley and DeSantis quickly pointed out that polls also show them leading Biden in many of those same swing states. Biden and Trump each commanded 37% of the vote in a USA Today Suffolk University poll released in October, but independent candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. cost Trump what would have been a narrow lead in the survey. Republicans also face an unprecedented twist in 2024. A former president who is running for the White House while facing up to four criminal trials next year with the prospect of convictions and prison sentences. Trump faces federal charges in Washington, D.C. and state charges in Georgia over efforts to steal the 2020 election from Biden. He's also been indicted over alleged hush money payments in New York and mishandling of classified documents in Florida. And there are also civil lawsuits. The Republicans' up-and-down week included testimony by Trump in a civil trial to determine damages for bank fraud. The former president delivered fiery comments in a Manhattan courtroom, arguing against a corporate death penalty for his real estate company. At one point, Trump lashed out at the judge in the case, saying, He called me a fraud and he didn't know anything about me. January 15th, the same day as the Iowa caucuses, is the scheduled start of a defamation trial brought by E. Jean Carroll, the writer who won a $5 million judgment against Trump earlier over an alleged sexual assault in the 1990s. Other Republicans said the evidence against Trump in some of these cases is strong, and they will eventually put the party in a very bad political situation. In a post-debate interview on MSNBC, candidate and former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie predicted that Trump is going to be convicted in some of these cases and many voters will turn on him. He is unfit to be President of the United States, Christie said. Our standards have to be higher than having a liar in the Oval Office, a criminal in the Oval Office. Pollster Kellyanne Conway, a former White House aide to Trump, said the Republican Party is going through some growing pains in an attempt to diversify itself, bringing in more young people and independents. Standing outside the Miami Concert Hall, where the GOP debate was held, 
Conway noted that Democrats also have their share of problems, including internal disputes over Israel and Middle East policy and criticism of Biden's leadership. Republicans will be fine, she predicted, especially if they follow through on plans to improve voter turnout, a key to Biden's victory in 2020. In other news, the U.S. Department of Justice said Thursday it supports the rights of people to travel across state lines and assist others in traveling across state lines in order to receive an abortion. The DOJ issued a court filing known as a Statement of Interest in support of two lawsuits brought against Alabama Attorney General Steve Marshall by healthcare organizi- organizers and abortion funds, arguing that any laws preventing this travel would violate the Constitution. The lawsuit specifically asked for a formal court ruling indicating that, dictating that Alabama cannot prosecute those who assist in facilitating cross-state travel for abortion procedures following threats by Marshall to charge those who do assist such travel under conspiracy statutes. Marshall has previously said that those who aid travel can be charged with conspiracy and that his office would look at groups who help Alabama residents seek access to abortion, though he has yet to make an attempt to move forward with any such prosecution. One lawsuit was filed by a group forced to stop providing financial support to low-income abortion patients called the Yellowhammer Fund, while the second was filed by former abortion providers, one obstetrician and two former abortion clinics, The DOJ has asked that its statement be considered by the federal judge deciding on the issue. Alabama is one of a number of states that all but banned abortion outright following the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Alabama has prohibited abortion at all stages of pregnancy with almost no exceptions, including none for cases of rape or incest. The only current exemptions on the ban in the state are those for pregnancies that threaten the life of the pregnant patient. Like states with similar laws, such as Texas, where ordinances have been put into place to block people from using local roads to travel to where abortion is legal, Alabama has sought to employ several legal barricades to stop residents looking to seek an abortion out of state. However, the DOG has argued that the right to travel is protected by the U.S. Constitution. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland argued, As I said the day Dobbs was decided, bedrock constitutional principles dictate that women who reside in states that have banned access to comprehensive reproductive care must remain free to seek that care in states where it is legal. The department likewise contended that Marshall cannot stop people from crossing state lines to get an abortion, and he cannot seek to achieve the same result by threatening to prosecute anyone who assists that individual in their travel. Marshall's office said in a statement to the Associated Press, Attorney General Marshall is prepared to defend our pro-life laws against this most recent challenge by the Biden administration and, as always, welcomes the opportunity. The legal fight comes in the wake of a separate case that was decided by a U.S. judge on Thursday in which Idaho was blocked from implementing an abortion trafficking law that would make it illegal to help a minor cross state lines to receive an abortion without parents' consent. And this story from Phoenix, Jacob Chansley, the spear-carrying rioter whose horned fur hat 
bare chest and face paint made him one of the more recognizable figures in the January 6th assault on the U.S. Capitol, apparently aspires to be a member of Congress. Online paperwork shows the 35-year-old Chansley filed a candidate statement of interest Thursday, indicating he wants to run as a libertarian in next year's election for Arizona's 8th Congressional District seat. U.S. Representative Debbie Lesko, a 64-year-old Republican representing the district since 2018, announced last month that she won't seek re-election. Her term officially ends in January 2025. Chansley pleaded guilty to a felony charge of, a, of obstructing an official proceeding in connection with the Capitol insurrection. He was sentenced to 41 months in prison in November 2021 and served about 27 months before being transferred to a Phoenix halfway house in March 2023. Chansley grew up in the greater Phoenix area. Chansley is among the more than 700 people who have been sentenced in relation to Capitol riot-related federal crimes. Authorities said Chansley was among the first rioters to enter the Capitol building, and he acknowledged using a bullhorn, bullhorn to rouse the crowd. Although he previously called himself the QAnon Shaman, Chansley has since disavowed the QAnon movement. He identifies himself as Jacob Angeli Chansley in the candidate statement of interest paperwork filed with the Arizona Secretary of State's office. Now, the U.S. Constitution doesn't prohibit felons from holding federal office, but Arizona law prohibits felons from voting until they have completed their sentence and had their civil rights restored. Emails sent to Chansley and his attorney seeking comment on his political intentions weren't immediately returned on Sunday. So we've just about reached the halfway point of our broadcast, and at this point we read today's obituaries. Maria Lucille Callahan passed away peacefully in the comfort of her own home on November 7th while surrounded by her loved ones. She was 96 years young and passed away on her birthday. Maria leaves behind her beloved five sons, John and Jal Janet Callahan of Yarmouth, Mike Callahan and Lynn of Marshfield, Steve and Audrey Callahan of Duxbury, Tim and Jackie Callahan of Falmouth, and Pat and Trish Callahan of Falmouth. She was a loving grandmother to 16 grandchildren and 19 great-grandchildren, a stat she was extremely proud of. Maria was born in 1927 in Randolph. Her parents came over to the States from Italy to start their family. Marie was extremely proud of her deep Italian roots and heritage. She was the second of three children. Marie adored her late siblings, older brother Henry and his wife Maud, and her younger sister Virginia, Ginny Rhoda Brewster, and her husband Robert Bibby Brewster. Marie would remain close with them and their children throughout her entire life. She was equally proud of all her nieces and nephews as she was her own grandchildren. Every year, Jenny would come and spend summers with Marie on Cape Cod, and in the winter, Marie would travel down to Florida to stay with Jenny, creating some of their fondest memories together later in life. Every Saturday while down in Florida, Marie and Jenny would attend Mass and then treat themselves to a nice sausage and pepper thin crust pizza from Domino's. Growing up, Marie always showed hustle and grit. Her first job out of high school was working for the State Street Bank as a stenographer. It was also in high school where she would meet John Jack Thomas Callahan Jr., whom she shared her five sons with. 
Together, Marie and Jack raised their five sons in Randolph while also starting their own business in construction in 1954. In addition to being the co-founder of John T. Callahan and Sons and Raising Five Boys, Marie also invested in and managed a robust real estate portfolio. Investing and giving back to her community was very important to her. She took her passion for politics and volunteered at the polls. She was elected to the Randolph Housing Authority and held her position as a member of the Ladies' Library Association of Randolph right up until her passing. She was most proud of her contributions while part of the Ladies' Library, a passion she shared with her longtime friend, Mary Good. Amongst all of Marie's hobbies and extracurricular activities, it was the time she was able to spend with her growing family that she found most gratifying. Her desire to be close to family and watch her grandchildren grow up resulted in her move to Falmouth. She found a love for golf and quickly became quite the competitor on the links, beating out her own sons at time and showing no mercy. She enjoyed gardening and cooking, and especially cooking anything that grew in her garden. Her grandchildren and great-grandchildren brought her endless joy. She loved any opportunity to spend time with them. It was Marie's wish that her life would be honored with a funeral mass. Mass will be held at St. Mary's Parish in Randolph on Wednesday, November 15th at 11 a.m. There will be a celebration of life following mass, arrangements handled by the Hurley Funeral Home in in Randolph. Maria Porovas, age 87, of East Falmouth, passed away on November 10th after a brief illness. Born in 1936 in Athens, Greece, she emigrated to the U.S. in the late 50s and became a naturalized citizen in 1962. She worked as an airline stewardess and met her future husband. She lived in Belmont and moved to Falmouth in the mid-1960s. She had two children and many careers and hobbies, Maria worked at Dunphy's Hotel and the Woodbriar before being a longtime employee of and retiring from the Marine Biological Laboratories as a grant accountant. She was an avid tennis player. Maria enjoyed the Falmouth Bowling League and even scored a perfect 300. She loved to play bridge and cribbage. She volunteered in many organizations, including the American Heart Fund and the Samaritans, where she was known as Maria 23. She loved to travel and visited many countries, returning often to her homeland, Greece. She leaves behind her loving husband, George, daughter, Leonora, Daniel Thomas, son, Christos, Mariana Franco, and her beloved grandchildren, Bertram, Zoe, Michael, and Nicholas. She leaves six nieces and nephews, and six Poravas nieces and nephews. Visitation will be held at Chapman Funerals and Cremations, 475 Main Street in Falmouth, on Wednesday, November 15th, from 4 to 6 p.m. And a funeral service will be held at St. George Church, 1130 Falmouth Road in Centerville, on Thursday, November 16th at 11 a.m., followed by a burial at the Massachusetts National Cemetery at 1.15 p.m. Back to the news, and somewhere hurtling more than 200 miles above the planet's surface is one of Earth's newest satellites, a tool bag, and it's possible you might be able to spot it with a telescope or a good pair of binoculars if you know where to look. The white satchel-like tool bag slipped away from two astronauts during a rare all-female spacewalk November 1st as they performed maintenance on the International Space Station, That's according to social media posts on X, formerly Twitter, 
from scientists and other experts familiar with the situation. While there's no official word whether the tool bag contained a 10 millimeter socket wrench, the bag was spotted floating over Mount Fuji last week by Japanese astronaut. Now space junk, it has since been cataloged with an ID number. Sadly, it's not the first tool bag lost in space. In November 2008, Endeavour astronaut Heidi Marie Stephenson Piper lost a grip on her backpack-sized tool kit while cleaning up a mess from a leaking grease gun. That tool bag, valued at $100,000, circled the planet for months until meeting its fiery end after plunging to Earth and disintegrating. Experts believe last week's missing tool bag will share the same fate as it hurdles in the upper atmosphere, which has become increasingly littered. As of September 2023, the European Space Agency estimates 11,000 tons of space objects are orbiting Earth. That includes up to 36,500 pieces of debris greater than 10 centimeters, objects that could cause cataclysmic damage if they were to hit a satellite or a rocket. Spotting a suitcase-sized tool bag traveling thousands of miles an hour in the planet's thermosphere isn't the impossible task it might sound like, say avid sky watchers. To begin, the bag is reflective thanks to catching the sun's rays and shines just below the limit of visibility to the unaided eye, meaning you should be able to spot the tool bag with a good pair of binoculars. Under clear, dark skies, the bag can be seen floating ahead of the International Space Station, which is the third brightest object in the night sky, and looks like a fast-moving plane. Fortunately, it's easy to spot if you know where to look. You can keep track of the International Space Station online at spotthestation.nasa.gov. According to Earth Sky, following the trajectory of the ISS and scan the sky in the area just ahead of the space station. As the tool bag gradually loses height, it should appear between two and four minutes ahead of the ISS during the next few days. And from Paris, more than 100,000 people marched on Sunday to protest against rising anti-Semitism in the wake of Israel's ongoing war against Hamas in Gaza. Prime Minister Elizabeth Bourne, representatives of several parties on the left, conservatives and centrists of President Emmanuel Macron's party, as well as far-right leader Mar Marine Le Pen, attended Sunday's march in the French capital amid tight security. Macron did not attend but expressed his support for the protest and called on citizens to rise up against the unbearable resurgence of unbridled anti-Semitism. Paris authorities deployed 3,000 police troops along the route of the protest, called by the leaders of the Senate and Parliament's lower house. France has the largest Jewish population in Europe, but given its own World War II collaboration with the Nazis, anti-Semitic acts today open old scars. Holding a French flag, Robert Fleel said marching against anti-Semitism anti is more than a duty. It's a march against violence, against anti-Semitism, against all political extremes that are infiltrating the society to show that the silent majority does exist. In other news, President Joe Biden's vision for America's role in the world has always been a shining city on a hill. That vision, once cherished by Democrats and Republicans alike, has given way to much greater cynicism. 
Americans are worried about being able to buy a house and pay for groceries. The prospect of proxy wars is unappealing, and after Afghanistan and Iraq, voters are deeply uneasy about the risk of getting drawn into overseas entanglements. Too many born after 9-11, there's a bigger existential question about whether the U.S. is still a beacon for other countries to emulate. Biden is stuck in the middle, trying to mediate between his ideal about how he should lead and the widespread frustration of his citizens. It will soon come to head as Biden welcomes the leaders of more than a dozen countries, including Chinese President Xi Jinping, to a major economic and trade summit for Pacific powers in San Francisco. A series of polls in the past two weeks have shown widespread discontent over the direction of the country. Americans do not believe Biden's leadership on the world stage has been effective. His lackluster support inspired a primary challenger, and last week the chief strategist for Barack Obama's presidential campaign suggested Biden should not seek office again. The threat of a government shutdown and a bitter dispute with hard-right Republicans over the White House's funding request for wars in Israel and Ukraine have also cast a shadow over the summit, where Biden is hoped to convince potential allies the U.S. is a reliable partner. This will be a tough time for President Biden to do it, said Peter Fever, who worked for multiple presidents on the National Security Council. This is a hard test for the administration. It is the second time in six months that a poorly timed dispute with Congress has disrupted Biden's plans to woo Pacific countries he hopes to draw away from China. Biden is in another battle with House Republicans over federal spending. A year out from the general election, the president is navigating a difficult reality. Voters surveyed are saying they prefer former President Donald Trump, who is promising to negotiate an end to Russia's war against Ukraine, carry out mass deportations, and ban refugees from any nation he considers a security threat. Biden's domestic agenda got a shot in the arm last Tuesday when Democrats and abortion rights prevailed in off-year elections the White House views as indicative of a favorable 2024 landscape. And his diplomatic efforts yielded some success last week when Israel announced that it would implement short humanitarian pauses in northern Gaza that will help citizens leave in battled areas and aid groups to deliver supplies more quickly. But whether that's enough for voters is at the heart of the question. Switching gears a bit, here's today's Ask Carolyn column with the, quest, the headline, the risk of withholding suicidal thoughts from medical intake forms. Dear Carolyn, I know I need to see a therapist. I suspect I am picking at details to stall, but I get hung up on the question, have you had suicidal thoughts from the intake forms? I did a depression screening sheet at my primary care and I put never, because frankly I was afraid if I put yes, I might get involuntarily admitted to a psych ward. As it was, answering truthfully other than that, what I thought would rate as mild depression, my physician assessed as more than that. I know I'm not in imminent danger of suicide because I've accepted not putting that burden on my 90-year-old mother. But yes, I do see it as a reasonable solution down the road. I do look forward to the day when I can feel the freedom to make that choice if I feel it is warranted. I do have carefully thought out plans to ensure it is complete if I do so choose. Part of me feels all of this is more an argument for how I am not suicidal, but part of me wonders if this counts as suicidal thoughts 
from the diagnostic sense of the question? Or is answering yes just being melodramatic because the question is meant to help those in a current crisis state? Signed, Anonymous. She answers, Dear Anonymous, yes, you do have suicidal thoughts, so please check that box. The question is meant to help your providers determine how to treat you, and they can't do that if you withhold key information. Just as an example, they may prescribe something for you they wouldn't prescribe for someone who has had uh, suicidal ideation, or they may provide less frequent supervision. Meanwhile, a yes to have you had suicidal thoughts can mean you had them 10 years ago, or a month ago, or yesterday. So there are a lot of steps between an intake form and an involuntary commitment. I certainly won't argue that any health system or set of protocols is perfect, but in my experience, you're inviting more error and suffering by lying on your form than you are by telling the truth. Please also humor me and memorize this number. 988 gets you to the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. And make that appointment. No more stalling, please. And regarding the intake, you can leave questions blank on a therapy intake form or any medical form for that matter. It will allow the therapist to ask you about it and then you can provide a fuller, more nuanced answer than the checklist allows for, which then allows you to feel safer and better understood. And there was one response from a therapist who wrote, Assessing for suicidal ideation is a critical part of my job. Never, not once, have I even thought about sending someone to a hospital because they have told me they've had such thought. It's data. It's part of the puzzle, but far from the only piece. The therapist's job is to explore and understand the thoughts and the role they've played for you. And remember again that number, if anything feels suicidal to you or your family members, can dial 988. That is the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. On a lighter note, here's what to watch on TV tonight. On the Game Show Network at 7.30 p.m., you have Split Second season premiere, and this game show was based on a format by the legendary Monty Hall, and it returns for season two, hosted by John Michael Higgins of America Says. The series airs weekdays at this time. On Fox at 8 p.m., Kitchen Nightmares, Gordon Ramsay steps in to help an engaged couple who run a small restaurant and have trouble separating their work and personal lives in the new episode, Love Bites. NBC at 8 p.m. on The Voice. Country superstar Winona Judd is enlisted as Mega Mentor to help prepare the artists for the knockouts. The three-way knockouts are back as coaches group three artists to perform individually against each other, then select a winner to move on to the playoffs. Each coach has one save and one steal. On Fox at 9 p.m., Special Forces, World's Toughest Test, the recruits face a mil- helicopter survival drill as a test of their ability to mentally handle a life-or-death situ- life situation in the new episode, Survival. And on PBS, A Town Called Victoria, you have to check your local time, in this two-part documentary miniseries, concluding tomorrow night, the South Texas town of Victoria is thrown into the national spotlight when a local mosque is burned to the ground in 2017. After the cameras turn away and the narrative slips from the headlines, 
Victoria must overcome its age-old political, racial, and economic divides and begin the hard work of changing itself for the better. And on USA Network at 11 p.m., it's the season premiere of Barmageddon. The celebrity game show returns for season two with a new set of outrageous bar games thrown into the mix, such as Fool's Ball, Tic Tac Throwdown, and Talk Derby to Me. The action takes place at Blake Shelton's Bar in Nashville with Nikki Garcia hosting, Carson Daly behind the bar, and Shelton's house band performing music. Among the celebrity competitors are Kelly Clarkson versus Michelle Rodriguez, Jelly Roll versus Gabriel Iglesias, and Rob Riggle versus Chris Hardwick. Okay, here's a strange headline. North Carolina orthodontist offers free gun with procedure. An orthodontist office in North Carolina has stirred up controversy with its new Grins and Glocks promotion, a deal offering guns to patients along with certain dental procedures. Gladwell Orthodontics, a practice owned by Dr. Jason Gladwell, has begun advertising the inclusion of a free Glock 19 handgun for patients who receive Invisalign treatment in his office. According to local station WFAB9, the deal allows Invisalign patients to choose between a free Glock, worth $500, or a membership at the local Youngsville Gun Club and Range. The promotion was originally offered to people already on the club's email list, but it began drawing widespread attention as locals caught wind. While Gladwell will be paying for purchase of the firearms or fire range membership, he will not be providing them directly in compliance with the law. Instead, the gun club owner, Kurt Lieberman, told local outlets, eligible patients will need to be 21 or older and visit the club directly in order to undergo a background check and receive the gun. It's a process. They have to come. They have to have a valid driver's license. They have to be a legal citizen. They have to be 21 and older. We do a background check here on site. That has to come back approved. They have to fill out all the paperwork, Lieberman told local station WRAL. Recipients of the free gun will also be recommended to take a training class, but it won't be required to receive their Glock. While the move is legal, it isn't popular with everyone. Jennifer Copeland, executive director of the New North Carolina Council of Churches, told WRAL she was shocked by the move. They're giving away guns that are going to be lodged in a house somewhere and will potentially create gun violence and gun death, Copeland told the station. It's mind-blowing to me that an organization that I think of as trying to provide health care to the people in the community is partnering their health care with gun death. While Gladwell's offer of a free Glock along with the purchase of Invisalign may seem rather unusual, his is not the only business offering guns as part of product promotions. An HVAC company in South Carolina called Arctic Air offers a free AR-15 along with the purchase of a system. That deal is running through 2024, according to the company's social media, and the owner has stated they choose to do the promotion because it's our legal right. Florida roofing company Roof Ease is making a similar offer for the holidays, providing customers a Thanksgiving turkey and an AR-15 to protect your family, along with the purchase and installation of a new roof. The companies themselves are not able to sell the guns directly and instead help customers coordinate with a licensed firearms dealer or provide a gift card to the partnering dealer. 
All of the businesses have said standard background checks and legal processes for gun ownership still apply. According to research published in October by the Statista Research Department, the U.S. averages more than 40,000 deaths from firearms annually, the only high-income country to report such a high toll from gun violence. A Pew Research Center study published in September found that about half, 49% of Americans say gun ownership does more to increase safety by allowing law-abiding citizens to protect themselves, but an equal number say gun ownership does more to reduce safety by giving too many people access to firearms and increasing misuse. And this story, Los Angeles motorists should expect traffic snarls indefinitely as crews assess how much damage was caused by a raging fire that closed a major elevated interstate near downtown, officials said Sunday. Hazardous materials teams were clearing burn material from underneath Interstate 10 to make way for engineers to make sure the columns and deck of the highway can support the 300,000 vehicles that typically travel that route daily, Governor Gavin Newsom said at a news conference. Remember, this is an investigation as to cause of as to the cause of how this occurred, as well as a hazmat and structural engineering question, Newsom said. Can you open a few lanes? Can you retrofit the columns? Is the bridge deck intact to allow for a few lanes to remain open again? Newsom said answering those questions would be a 24-7 operation, but officials couldn't yet offer a timeline for when the highway might reopen. Commuters were urged to work from home or take public transportation into downtown Los Angeles. The I-10 closure between Almeda Street and Santa Fe Avenue will have ripple effects on surface streets and other key freeways, including State Route 60 and Interstate 5. The cause of the fire was under investigation. Flames reported around 12.20 a.m. Saturday raged through two storage lots in an industrial area underneath the highway burning piles of wooden pallets, parked cars, and support poles for high-tension power lines. No injuries were reported. More than 160 firefighters from 26 companies responded to the blaze, which spread across eight acres, which is the equivalent of about six football fields, and burned for more than three hours. The highway's columns are charred and chipped, while guardrails along the deck are twisted and blackened. Newsom declared a state of emergency Saturday afternoon and directed the State Department of Transportation to request assistance from the federal government. And here are some news in brief from Boston. The Pan, <coughs> excuse me, the Panmas Challenge handed over a record $72 million to the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute on Sunday, moving the pioneer cross-state bicycle ride within sight of $1 billion raised. The summertime ride to the tip of Cape Cod is the largest single-event athletic fundraiser in the world, raising $972 million for cancer care since 1980. It is the largest single contributor to Dana-Farber and its Jimmy Fund. A total of 6,500 participants cycled up to 211 miles across the state for the 44th PMC in August. And from Berlin, five U.S. service people were killed when a military helicopter crashed over the eastern Mediterranean Sea during a training mission. 
The military's European command said all five crew members on board were killed when the aircraft went down during a routine air refueling mission as part of military training. The military said that the cause is under investigation. There are no indications of any hostile activity involved. It also wasn't immediately clear which military service the aircraft belonged to. The Air Force has sent additional squadrons to the region, and the USS Gerald R. Ford aircraft carrier, which has an array of aircraft on board, has also been operating in the eastern Mediterranean. And two people have been arrested in Atlanta in connection with the fire that damaged an Atlanta apartment complex and led to more than 100 evacuations. Atlanta news outlets reported that the fire happened Friday night. Firefighters were still on the scene Saturday, putting out hot spots. Investigators believe the fire may have been caused by fireworks being ignited on the roof, police said. 17 people were treated for smoke inhalation as a result of the blaze at the reserve at La Vista Walk Apartments. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution reported that the Red Cross is assisting 28 displaced residents. The suspects face charges of first-degree criminal damage to property and reckless conduct. An Atlanta police officer was among the apartment building's residents. And an Illinois hunter has died after being shot in the face by someone in his hunting party. The department said that its law enforcement arm is investigating the shooting death of Seth Egelhoff, 26, of Chesterfield, Illinois. Someone called 911 around 1 p.m. Saturday to report that Egelhoff had been shot while hunting waterfowl in the Bays Branch Wildlife Area just north of Penora. Emergency medics rushed Egelhoff to a spot to be picked up by a medical helicopter, but he died en route. The shooting appeared to be accidental. The wildlife area is about 40 miles northwest of Des Moines. So that is all the time I have for today. This is your reader, Beth, saying thank you for listening and also thank you for your continued support of the Audible Local Ledger.